This is one of the things that the 43 Group is known by and should be known in the future, that you do not wait to be attacked. You take the fight of the enemy and attack those before they attack you. We did find ourselves in a very tricky situation, sometimes outnumbered. Anything you do to deter people from nasty things they want to do was uh, a good thing. Hello, welcome to another episode of Radio 43, the anti-fascism podcast from Hope Not Hate. On the show this week, I am delighted to be joined by the familiar face of our director of research, Joe Mulhall. How are you, mate? Good, mate. How are you? How's things? Good. Sun is shining, finally. It's been just weeks of rain up here. So it didn't save the cricket, though, did it? Unfortunately. No, no. I mean, we, we, we nearly went down a rabbit hole last episode, and I think we should try and avoid it on this episode, too. Yeah. But yeah, it was a big, big shame. I'm also delighted to welcome another new face to the Radio 43 hot seat. It is our Director of Policy and Engagement, Rosie Carter, who's responsible for all of our you know, research um, into, into sort of policy areas, new government policy areas. Rosie, how are you doing? What's going on? Good, busy, busy. Good. Well, glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you for making the time to come on. Um, before we get going with this episode, I'd just like to say that if you would like to support the work I Hope Not Hate and the anti-fascist uh, cause then you can head to our online store you will find a range of merch you'll find some books um, you'll find mugs you'll find other bits and pieces uh, and all of that will be funneled into our campaigning work so do go and check it out you can visit that through our website thank you very much right we're, on with- we're currently dressed head to toe in, in hope not hate merch in the office right now joe's got his uh hope not hate beanie on uh yeah you're looking good well on the show this week it's going to be in a similar style to the last episode that we did we'll be covering one topic in quite a bit more depth than we would otherwise do on the show um and this week it's going to be the anti-migrant demonstrations which have really been something of a, a unifying objective for the far right this year and this is part one on this theme uh at the next episode we're going to be joined by uh two other colleagues misbra and anki to talk about what's been happening in response to these demos but this is going to be really looking at everything that's happened over the last six months, uh, what the direction of travel is, who are the key players are, and um, and really, you know, just diving into what to what's been going on. Because as as of early June, Hope Not Hate attracts fifty anti-migrant demonstrations around the country this year. I imagine, Joe, you'll probably correct me on this in a minute, but I imagine that figure is probably more like sixty now. Um, and in the Stoking the Flames, Stoking the Flames report that, that you guys put out earlier on this year, we'd found that there'd been a hundred and two percent rise in anti-migrant activism on last year. So it's a really grim statistic. It just shows how much this has become a real central campaigning angle for the far right. But, you know, we're going to go into this in a bit more detail. But these aren't kind of mass mobilisations on the sort of scale that we saw with the English Defence League. But they are consistent. They're hostile. Some of them have become very, very violent. So, Joe, why don't you kind of? help set, set some of the framework here for this discussion. You know, what, what sort of thing are we talking about here when we're talking about these anti-migrant demos? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, as I say, between kind of middle of February and, and May, we tracked 50. And I, and I think we'd go higher than 60. I mean, there's been periods in the recent month or so where there's been four or five in, in a single week. Um, and as you say, this is one of those issues, anti-migrant demonstrations and protests and visiting of hotels and that sort of stuff has been kind of a slight obsession for the last couple of years for the British far right. 
And one of the things I think that's changed this year is, is that a lot of the mo- activity we were monitoring from the traditional far right was last year was individual activists or very, very tiny groups of activists going to accommodation that was housing asylum seekers and filming individual you know, pieces of content that they would put online. Post Kirby, when there was, of course, that we talked about it on the podcast at the time, actually, about when there was the, the demonstration that happened outside of the hotel, uh, where the, the police van was burned, primarily a kind of local mobilization. Um, a lot of the far right saw that and thought that they needed to jump on the issue and that they thought this was an opportunity for them to recruit in local communities, to, to exploit local anger and pressure in certain places. And we saw this vast flurry of activism and we saw lots of individual far right groups just uh, calling demonstrations at a few days notice at some sort of accommodation, housing asylum seekers and migrants attempting to capitalise on that. Uh, as the months went on, obviously, that kind of scattergun approach began to to reduce in its effectiveness in that they weren't building proper demonstrations, as you say, in the mould mm. of previous far-right groupings like the English Defence League, which spent weeks or months building towards a protest. This was much more scattergun. Uh, and so they started to realise then that that actually they need to take a bit more time and some of the gaps increased between the various events. And And we've seen this is across the spectrum. You know, this is kind of ranging from you know, your very traditional groups, Britain first doing turning up at things, patriotic alternative turning up at things, Homeland Party turning up at things, um, these kind of very traditional far-right groupings. But also we've seen UKIP getting involved in trying to stoke up some stuff in various communities. We've seen uh, kind of, and then of course, we've also seen this much more just the populist sort of radical righty space, you know, those kind of political parties we've talked about in the past, Brexit Party. Um, there is everyone is attempting to get a piece of this pie and essentially trying to exploit the kind of wider societal community anger that's happening in certain places. And we are seeing, and this is continuing, you know, in the last few weeks, we've felt there's been a real uptick once again in, in, a, in a handful of communities where these problems have become a bit more long term. So we're seeing lots and lots of activism. But it's course, I mean, I'm sure Rosie will talk more. A lot of this isn't just merely far right groups leading at the front of this. Sometimes it's far right groups turning up at other other events. But broadly speaking, um, there is a huge amount of activism happening from a relatively small number of far right groupings at the moment. That's really interesting. I think we should get into the numbers and, and things a bit later on. But, but I think uh, that's a really useful overview. Rosie, why don't you take us back a bit then? So help help us set the scene here. How did this become such a massive issue for the far right? And you know, where did this kind of all begin, really? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, really important that we don't just look at far-right activity around this, but we also look at how the far-right has basically weaponised what is a mainstream issue, uh, which has come about through a series of policy failings in the asylum system. So, I mean, the asylum system is extremely complicated to understand in this country, which is partly why it's quite easy to weaponise, because the solutions are very nuanced and complex. But basically, asylum accommodation is provided by the Home Office. This is provided through kind of private companies, Circomers, Clear Springs are kind of the main ones. And under this scheme, asylum seekers, when they arrive in the country, are given something called initial accommodation. So hostels, hotels, and student accommodation type sites have been used for a really, really long time. And this is basically the first place that people are put when they arrive in the country. Um, and then their their kind of claims process and people are given kind of long-term accommodation dispersed through the country in communities, given some support until their cases process and then granted refugee status. So that's the kind of system we've had. But there's basically been an all-time backlog. So cuts to legal services and so on have meant that loads of people have been stuck in this kind of limbo state. And it's also meant that there's not enough places for people to live. So what's happened is the Home Office through these companies have been buying up hotels almost overnight, 
people are kind of being bussed around from place to place, communities are not being informed, local authorities are not being informed. And this has happened on an enormous scale. So we've now got a system where hotel accommodation, hostel accommodation, B&B accommodation has become a really normal thing. What was kind of contingency accommodation? And it really started being used more and more during the pandemic, partly because of COVID restrictions. Um, that's now become the norm and it's become a really difficult thing to manage for communities. And it's quite understandable that it's kicked up local tensions. There's been all sorts of things happen, but effectively what we've got at the moment is an asylum system that's being handled by the hospitality sector. And of course, that's going to see a lot of problems. It also means it's something that is very, very widespread across the country. So it's happening in places where asylum seekers have never been living before. Uh, places where there isn't kind of sufficient support, quite often in isolated hotels, kind of holiday campsites. And there are all sorts of things happening there as well that mean it's been very, very badly managed. So uh, we've seen kind of cases where all staff in hotels have been made redundant to then get kind of other staff involved because it's coming through a private company or weddings being cancelled. And these things get picked up locally they become kind of points of tension it's a hotel where people quite often go to dinner or been to weddings and suddenly it's completely changed its use and it's kind of it's quite understandable that people are upset about some of these things but as well it's it's kind of there's no support in place it's a very obvious thing where people are so during the pandemic we've, we've basically started to see the rise in these kind of migrant hunters assistant journalists turning up at hotel sites to create online content so people like Yorkshire Rose and quite often they were just kind of standing in hotel car parks filming shouting mm -hmm. and really getting anywhere but that stuff then goes online things get whipped up in groups and then we've seen this kind of move to demonstrations increase over recent years and it's it's a really scary thing for people who are stuck in limbo living in really unsuitable unsafe accommodation um, and it's also completely kind of, it doesn't make any sense um, to most people about why this is happening. It's a really inefficient and really expensive way to manage the asylum system. And I think as well, it's completely linked to government rhetoric in that the more we're seeing kind of tensions being wound up around hotel use, um, things like the Bibby Barge scheme being kind of framed as a solution because it looks punitive and it is punitive. Um, but actually, the cost of this is is not really going to take anything off what's currently happening. Um, it's kind of dumping problems on communities in a way that is very, very, very difficult now to start to undo. So, is the just on the on the topic of rhetoric? So I think that's a really interesting uh, angle in this discussion. Like, it, do you, is there kind of a symbiotic relationship then between government and? you know, far-right activists and things on the ground in the sense of the go government policy, government rhetoric on this issue shapes what the far-right do and then the far-right do something locally which kind of feeds back into that hostility from the government. Is that kind of what you're, what you're, what you're saying? Or Totally. I mean, I think there's kind of two things happening. I think one is the way that kind of, I mean, the more you talk about migration and asylum, the more you whip up hatred, the more you whip up kind of hostility at the kind of national rhetoric level, the more people perceive it as a problem. So mm. then when that is landing in real time in communities that are suddenly having people arrive who are quite vulnerable being kind of put in these accommodation centers aren't really causing a problem on themselves, but when there's no other support put in place, it's very easy to make that link and it's got a kind of local grounding. So there's kind of been this moral panic whipped up around this issue that is then creating opportunities for the far right. 
but also the language itself is feeding the far-right. And I think there's two things. It's both kind of feeding far-right activity from the mainstream, but also we need to look at kind of how the mainstream language has shifted in itself. So there's two things happening there. And I think, I mean, in our, uh, we did this report, I think Nick's already mentioned, Stoking the Flames, which looked at online far-right activity. So messages on Telegram, which is used for lots of far-right groups to organise. And we looked at kind of hundreds of thousands of messages on that platform. And we layered that over with data from three kind of main tabloid papers, the Mail, Express, the Sun, looking at the language, looking at activity, and we also looked at government announcements by that time. And it was really clear that there were kind of spikes in activity around, for example, when there was a lot of political noise around the Rwanda scheme. We then saw right. far-right messages kind of shoot through the roof. Um, similarly, kind of when we saw news coverage, kind of a lot talking about small boat crossings and so on, we would see far-right activity online shoot up. So there is a kind of symbiotic relationship there. But I think the other thing is kind of the language overlay where actually the language of the mainstream and that the far right are using around this issue is really, really similar. And there are really kind of similar themes overlaying. Um, and I think that's where things start to get quite dangerous because it's yeah. much less easy to kind of draw lines and say, no, this is a far right issue. And I think that's also where we've seen things that are quite difficult to challenge at the community level, where there are groups of community opposition to plans for asylum accommodation locally and there are kind of groups mobilizing there. Some of that can be done from a progressive perspective that it is actually kind of, it's not a plan that works for anyone. It's it's kind of completely unsuitable accommodation for asylum seekers. It doesn't help people. It doesn't help people kind of get on and get on with their lives, but equally kind of there's no community support. So you can see it from that perspective, but what we have seen is these far right groups piggyback on the issue and start to rile things up and offer a language locally for opposition that's much more within their framing. So how how do they do that? How do these far right groups do that then? Because I think that's that's a kind of a really, I mean, what you've just described there is a extremely dangerous situation, very disturbing one, and the far, and it, it's one that's already dangerous, and the far right are exploiting it to make it even more so. And obviously, we saw the events in Kirby earlier on this year, um, which had far right involvement. PA Patriotic Alternative were involved in that in the run up to it, I believe. So, in what way are the far right exploiting this, and how are they, how are they going about doing that? Well, there's a few things there. I'll row it row it back, and without being kind of the boring historian, but there's um. <laughs> You, you know, there, as Rosie said, there is this symbiotic uh, relationship that's happening. And, and one of the things that we're seeing here is, is um, in some senses, almost kind of the radicalization of the Conservative Party post-2016, post the Brexit vote, where elements of the party and certainly the right wing of the party have increasingly occupied what would probably I'd call like a populist radical right space. Now, it obviously makes it, our political system uh, means we have very broad political parties, which makes it very hard to compare the Conservative Party to the AFD in Germany or the Sweden Democrats in Sweden or, you know, lots of chat about the Vox in Spain at the moment because they're much more ideologically coherent and narrow parties. But what the similarity, I guess, is, is that what we've seen in lots of those European countries where you've had a strong radical right threat is conservative and centre right conservative parties shifting right with a view to occupying the political space and with a view to hopefully undermining the electoral threat that's posed by the British or by, by the far right. Now, of course, we don't have a strong electoral far right in the United Kingdom that, um, that are necessarily going to take away votes. But if I think you have to put it in a slightly longer term perspective and say, 
the Conservative Party over the last decades, its obsession with, say, Nigel Farage, UKIP and this threat from the right has seen a direction of travel where they have sought to increasingly occupy a radical right space. And really importantly, when it comes to the issue of migration, they've started to uh, increase, certainly in the last five years, really present themselves in quite a populist sense. And we've talked about populism on this podcast before as broadly being defined as the pure people and the corrupt elite. And the conservative parties are attempting to frame themselves as the people on this on behalf of the people against this global elite that is, you know, flooding Britain with migrants. So the Conservative Party has shifted right, partly because of the legacies of the last five, six years and 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 the threat that say UKIP posed to the right of them uh, some years ago. And then the far right are also now feeling squeezed because they're obviously seeing a lot of some of their patri- patri- space they would hope to occupy being occupied by the right of the Conservative Party. Now, what's really, I think, a really interesting parallel is um, many, many years ago when Le Pen was running against Chirac, she goes, you will, you know, the, the voters will realise the difference between the real version of this and the copycat version. And that's actually playing out when you look at the British far right, the traditional far right rhetoric around migration and immigration over the last two years. They haven't been appeased by the Conservative Party's shift mm-hmm. to the right on this. Right? They are continuing to say this isn't hard enough, this isn't strong enough. The Conservatives will never placate those people for whom migration and immigration is the most salient issue, no matter how far they push right on this. But what they are seeing in the British far right is an opportunity, as has been said, to exploit the issue. And by that, I mean... As we as this issue becomes more salient, it's more discussed. There's more coverage in the right wing tabloid press. There is more discussion about it everywhere. The conservatives take a hard line on it. They normalize elements of far right rhetoric when it comes to these particular issues. And the far right see that as an opportunity to go into these angry people that have been whipped up by some of this discussion in, in wider discourse and try to put roots down in those communities. That could be turning up at demonstrations, that could be leafleting certain communities where there's migrant accommodation. And sometimes it's more pernicious, you know, groups like Patriotic Alternative, kind of frustrated at their stalling progress, are doing events without their own name, trying to put down roots in a much more traditional kind of community organising sense, joining Facebook groups locally and stoking up tensions and trying to move people in their direction politically. It's a slightly longer term process. So it's important to say that it's not going to result in this kind of explosion of a right-wing electoral threat. But what it is, is that the far right are attempting to put down roots in the communities that they believe are most angry about the issues that are being discussed in quite a negative way across society. Just on that topic about on the Conservative Party, which I think I'd be interested to get both your thoughts on this. You know, there's there's a kind of coherent line of argument here where you which goes, you know, the Conservative Party is is in a really, really problematic electoral space heading into the next general election. Is this kind of part of a broader electoral strategy in terms of stirring up this kind of hate. I mean, yesterday we saw, I think all three of us saw the uh, Rishi Sunak's tweet thread saying the, the Labour Party's on the side of criminal gangs and traffickers. And is this part of a kind of broader electoral strategy ahead of the next general election, given the Conservative Party, you know, tank the economy and is in a really difficult electoral electoral space at the moment? Yeah, I mean, it's being talked about a lot as a kind of small boat selection. Um, We're yet to see what that is. I mean, the other thing, I guess, is that like the whole reason that channel crossings are increasing is that rail and road routes have been shut down. There has been kind of quite a lot put in place. It's and it's a very kind of visible thing to mobilize around. Um, so it's quite kind of understandable why people have drifted in that way. But I think as well, it's, it's not just kind of the conservatives trying to be hard on immigration to win like they're not seeing that and it's also i mean it's a bit of a kind of 
falsity and the more that you whip up panic around immigration the more people who have hostile attitudes to immigration think you're going to kind of solve a problem and when that doesn't happen it breaks trust with the political parties right when you don't see change to something you've been promised you're going to get more angry about it so it's it's a kind of it's a snowball effect of a problem in that the more you whip up panic the more people get panicked and the more they're looking for solutions that aren't going to work because people are always going to move and mm. this is not how the world works um so it's it's kind of and it's also kind of appealing to a kind of law and order thing but i think one thing that it's doing is it's also worth looking at the response of the progressive world because a lot of these things are basically creating a thing that plays out where progressives get really outraged a lot of energy is also sucked from the progressive sector from the progressive world from activists into opposing these things and you kind of become the dog that barks right so when the Rwanda scheme was announced it was completely unworkable it's then been proved to be unlawful through this very kind of hot process that's kept it on the agenda that's kept it a live issue that's continued to politicize immigration and particularly asylum and then kind of the scheme fails, it's it's deemed unlawful. And then we see the Home Secretary call opponents of the scheme kind of phony humanitarianists. You know, it's the same thing mm. we've seen with panic around kind of activist lawyers whipped up or people who are deemed kind of loony lefty. It's the same thing we've seen time and time again of kind of being too PC, loony left, gone too far, not gonna not gonna provide us with answers. So it's also kind of how the Conservative Party are using asylum in particular, to to frame themselves as kind of a sensible party, even though these things kind of seem quite quite wacky and are. It's looking at kind of how progressives respond. And it, in some ways, it also speaks to kind of how they're playing with Labour. Labour have always been quite awkward on, it's quite a generous way to say it, but awkward on, on immigration issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's trying in some ways to back them into a corner. Um, so it's a whole kind of theatre going on that isn't really about immigration itself in many ways, but it's trapping thousands of very vulnerable people um, in a very cruel process that's having having a lot of harm at the same time. Yeah, and, and just I agree, and, and just to jump on that, I mean, I think that we're going to talk way more, aren't we, about about the elections over the coming months and years in this. Um, but as Rosie said, uh, you know, I think the the Tories are certainly going to try to to ramp up the issue around cross channel migration and accommodation, those sorts of issues. Partly because, you know, the polling seems very, relatively clear that on, on many of the issues that are most in, people are most interested in, whether or not that's the cost of living crisis, uh, the National Health Service, um, the polling seems to show that trust is, is higher in the Labour Party on many of these issues, even the economy in some cases. And so they have to try and direct the political debate towards an issue with which they think they have a stronger hand. Uh, and and traditionally, as we know, people trust the Conservative Party more on things like immigration and migration than they do the Labour Party. And so if they can try and shift the discourse or the discussion in the run up to an election away from houses, hospitals, schools and, and those sorts of issues that many people have lost trust with them on um, towards an issue that they think they traditionally are viewed as much stronger on. If that becomes the most important issue, I think they think they have a better hand. But maybe um, we should save the elections for another day. Yeah, let's do that. I think I think it's also worth like stressing like, that this is a problem of their own creation. I mean, it's it is yeah. this kind of increase in asylum backlog and the kind of mess around accommodation and and also the outsourcing to private companies on this scale that has created this kind of a problem. So I think it's really worth remembering that they are the architects of this system. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do have the possibility to change it by actually kind of dealing with housing issues and so on rather than just whipping up the issue. Yeah, definitely. Um, you've both mentioned, as I've got a couple more things I want to touch on. You've both mentioned 
I think rightly and very interestingly, you've both mentioned the role of the media here. And one thing I wanted to touch on was how far has come has some of this stuff seeped into local reporting uh, mm-hmm. around the country? How far have some of the kind of narratives, the anti you know the anti migrant narratives, etc. How how far has that seeped in? I know. Joe, you've got a particular beef with one, with one <laughs> with one person in the kind of southeast. But is there like a like? Can you give me a sense of how that's how that's played out in local reporting? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll save Joe's beef now. But <laughs> <laughs> I think I mean it's it's quite interesting. In I think this is a really interesting thing because we always think about immigration, asylum as these kind of national issues that the tabloid press are whipping up, blah blah blah. But what we've actually seen is the importance of local press and the importance, and it's partly the way that these things are playing out locally, right? A lot of this is around asylum accommodation. It's a very niche specific thing and it is playing out locally and we can see that. And I think the stuff that I was talking about earlier in terms of kind of staff being laid off or weddings being cancelled, these are kind of quite micro issues we might think on a national scale. But what happens is they get picked up by local press they then get fueled into kind of far-right groups. We see a lot of these stories doing the rounds in these kind of far-right telegram channels. And then we see them start to whip up kind of issues in Facebook groups locally. They're kind of buying and selling local Facebook groups and so on. And then they become national points of tension. Um, mm-hmm. So we've seen this happen quite frequently. And it's, I mean, it was quite interesting in the report we we did kind of soaking flames, looking at the kind of, impact of government rhetoric on far-right activity online. This was actually one of the most interesting findings. I think that actually local press has a huge responsibility in charging some of the kind of far-right activity around this because it can pick up very kind of specific local incidents, which immediately become mobilisation points. Um, So, yeah, there's definitely a lot that could be done in terms of kind of more responsible reporting Mm. um, locally. but yeah, it's quite an interesting dynamic. Definitely is, yeah. The- and just for the record, Nick, the, the journalist I have beef with, <laughs> is Simon Jones at the BBC. Okay. Um, and, uh, <laughs> I wasn't sure. I wasn't. I wasn't sure if you wanted to make that public or not. So I was. No, uh, and actually, but I, look, look, I, 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 rightly so, by the way. I, I, I think it's it, different. But what I, the reason I've been uh, kind of concerned about that reporting is that it fits into the genre that a huge amount of his reporting has been based on the South Coast. And it has been indistinguishable at times from many of the migrant hunters. It is just this drip, drip of daily numbers. This this boat has arrived with this many people with no context, and and we see how it has then been picked up and and, and kind of flooded through far right channels that we monitor. It's contextless. Uh, it doesn't mention is this a boat full of young children that's arrived or is it a boat full of fighting age men, as the far right would argue. It's just this drip, drip of numbers. And, he, he, you know, his Twitter bio even just says, you know, stands on cliffs, which ironically is basically the Twitter bio of many of the migrant hunters we have that we monitor. So um, I'm sure he's a nice guy. I don't know him. But the, resp- the, the way that um, a certain journalists, either at local or even at national level, have seen this issue being a real way <clears throat> to get big coverage because it's the big story and have engaged in behaviour that's been really counterproductive or sometimes pretty irresponsible. One of the things is, uh, that I think is interesting is that there's been some really significant kind of moments throughout this year, some real sort of flashpoints. One of them was early on this year, right at the start, and I know we did a big episode on on Kirby after it happened. But one one of the things that I'm kind of interested to to get to the bottom of is like how much of a how significant was that in the kind of growth of the movement, or in terms of did the government kind of take a did did the government take a step back for a bit and realize that what it was saying, you know, it was some of the language was irresponsible and it was stirring up some of these things. Did the far right have a massive kind of boost? Did it take a lot of wind out of the kind of sale of the sales of some of these activists 
or did it perform a real mobilizing function and did it well, uh, boost numbers? I'll, I'll leave the government stuff to Rosie. Well, I, I think it was important when we look at the traditional far right. Um, you know, footage and pictures of hundreds of people angry about an issue that the far right believed that, you know, that they agreed with them on. Um, burning police vans and that level of anger really excited the British far right. They really saw it as an opportunity or a moment that they needed to capitalise on. And that's why we saw this vast flurry of demonstrations in the weeks and months that followed was because they saw, uh, you know, as a real opportunity when they were in the doldrums, where they've been having a really bad few years with, with very little traction on many issues. They all of a sudden felt, well, we can be the most vocal and active element of a clear, wider societal angle on this issue. And Kirby was hugely exciting to them. And as I say, that's why we had 50 demonstrations that went from the, the 15th, or was it 15th of February when it happened in Kirby through to May. And we've had, you know, dozens more since then. It was a real catalyst. And it was the big catalyst that shifted it from small scale individual activism at accommodation towards attempting to organise much broader, wider, larger street demonstrations outside accommodation. And I think a lot of that was catalysed by the events of that night in Kirby. Wow. I think on in terms of did did the government look at what they were saying and really think it? No, they did not. Um, and also, it's not the first time that, that something like this is... I mean, Kirby was a huge demonstration, yes. But in terms of kind of government rhetoric, what we've actually seen is the government have doubled down on hard talk on asylum at any opportunity. So we saw it after the Dover bomber. We saw them double down on hard talk on immigration then. We saw it after Kirby. But I think also my my big fear is not just the government's rhetoric and their commitment to hard talk on immigration and asylum, but it's also the lack of safeguards that have been put in place. Um, we haven't seen kind of... And, and also I think the complete detachment of immigration asylum punitive policies from actually what communities need which is support for integration for inclusion for these things that are not going to be very popular when we look at the government's current agenda so what we've got is this kind of situation where things are just going to get hotter and hotter and hotter at the political kind of rhetoric level um but we haven't really seen sufficient safeguards put in place and i think as well like the the accommodation system is still a complete mess there doesn't seem to be a long-term solution um things like the bibby barge you know even if that was something that was going to work if you can even call it that in terms of a solution for housing then you know i mean it's not a long-term solution people aren't in communities people are like the backlog is is being dealt with slightly better than it was to give them some credit, but it's still enormous and there is a, a really, really, really long way to go. So people are still stuck in limbo. People are still going to be stuck in housing that's completely unsuitable. So these problems are going to continue and we're yet to see a change of tact um, from the government. That's a really interesting uh, point, Rosie. And I think that kind of brings me on to my last question, really, which was to say to both of you, where do you kind of see this movement and this kind of energy going obviously we're moving into autumn fairly soon it kind of feels like autumn already up here but moving into autumn fairly soon then obviously over winter channel crossings tend to kind of die down so do you see that sucking a lot of the energy out of the movement or is this is this thing going to trundle on for as long as well up until the next election i mean i don't i don't think kind of the numbers of channel crossings are necessarily kind of directly related to to what the far right are up to. I mean, definitely there's kind of some rhetoric around it, but I mean, the far right don't really care about policy. They don't really care about what's happening. They're just seizing this as a moment. Yeah. Um, and I think what we're going to see, we, I mean, we're going to see a continuation of 
hard talk from the government um, of kind of panic whipped up more and more of doubling down on the kind of small boat stop the boat's agenda and that's in turn going to feed things so I think we're not going to see any kind of long-term solutions um, in terms of accommodation in terms of dealing with the backlog and so on because it's not in their political interest so I think this issue is going to keep mobilizing the far right yeah yeah I agree I mean I think uh, I, agree. I mean I think the conservative party will continue to, to bang the drum on it in the run-up to the election as we kind of mentioned earlier as it's an issue that they think they'll be be useful for them uh, the far right will continue to to be really preoccupied with this going going through the in, right into the winter because as Rosie kind of said um, maybe two or three years ago two years ago when we were talking about it obviously a lot of it was tied to the number of of people on coming across the channel um, because their activism was based on the on the beaches um, now it's much more based around accommodation um, a lot of this accommodation has been there for a long time and will probably be there for a lot longer and so their energy is directed toward those so even if the numbers of people crossing the channel reduces um the far right will still spend its time looking at accommodation in communities that they that they dislike um going into the kind of medium term i think should the labor party win the next election i think we could end up with a real kind of exacerbation of the issue when it comes to the far right in terms of um, you know, the far right are unhappy with how the Conservative Party are dealing with it. They're likely to be apoplectic about how a Labour Party would deal with it, um, if the Labour Party end up being slightly better at it. Um, and I think we could end up with the kind of under a Labour government, I think we'll see a kind of real resurgent anger in the far right around this issue, um, because there will be nothing implicating them, depending on what the Labour Party do, of course. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, so I think in the medium to long term, that's going to be one to watch as well. But in the short term, I don't see it going anywhere. I think we're going to continue to see lots of demonstrations, um, we're going to see, continue to see lots of activism and anywhere where there is a flare-up of local tension or local concern about accommodation, the far right will be there you know, either very soon afterwards attempting to whip up uh, tensions further and trying to approve and having meetings, etc. So it's certainly one we're watching very closely. Definitely. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, next episode, I'm going to be talking to two colleagues who've been working kind of in the areas of community response and looking at how communities have come together and and you know fought off the far right in some of these some of these places where this uh where these demonstrations have been happening so uh looking forward to talking to them about that because this has been fascinating but quite gloomy uh i think on in on the whole so looking forward to hearing some more hopeful stuff at the next episode but i really appreciate both of your time because uh you've had some really fascinating insights so thank you very much no, no thank, thank you nick and uh rosie will have to get you back on again very soon yeah, thanks for having me. Not see at all. Any time. Joe, good to see you, mate. Yeah, see you later, mate. See you later. Bye. You cannot prevent 50 people, 50 postmen or 50 dustmen, from having anti-Semitic thoughts. But you can prevent 50 dustmen forming an anti-Semitic dustbin association. Take the fight of the enemy and attack those before they attack you.